Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to, good morning, Law 101. This is judgment in God's courtroom today. Okay, so I have a problem actually now that I call that up. Uh, because of, uh, this was Pastor Cody's idea, by the way, uh, to play the theme of Law and Order, which was awesome. Uh, but I have a problem because of copyright laws. I'm going to have to go back now and cut that portion of the sermon out. And so for those of the people that watch this after the fact, they're not going to feel what you just felt in that moment. So I'm going to need your help really quickly, if that's okay. And so I'm going to count the three, and I just want you to replicate what you just heard of that dum-dum, that end part of the Law and Order, if you can. So on three, that dum-dum, one, two, three. Okay, that was pretty good. Let's try that one more time. One, two, three. Let me feel it. Okay, order. Um, So I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm definitely not not the judge, uh, and you may not have known this, but we are gathered together today in God's uh, cosmic courtroom, so to speak, and, and we have a law that's standing up against us, accusing us in our sin. We as all the defendants have this case that's being built against us from Romans chapter 1, 18 through uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And by the way, uh, the the judge today is Jesus, and Judge Jesus is not to be confused with uh, Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown or Aaron Judge or any other earthly, pseudo-earthly judge. This is Jesus, the perfect judge, residing over this case. And Paul, he's operating as a, uh, a prosecutor, so to speak, against us this morning. And for you, you actually don't have to... Put your hand on the Bible this morning to testify because what we're going to see in the text is that uh, both creation and conscience, your own conscience, is going to stand against you as a witness in this, in this text today. And additionally, God the Father has the dash cam footage of your life to, to unveil what's been veiled, to reveal every secret that you have and voice it publicly. And so if I haven't built this up enough this morning, what we're talking about is that L word. It's not loser, it's not love, it's not lunchtime, but you're going to be hungry by the end of this. It's the law. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read through verses 12 through 16 together. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and, and grab that this morning. And there should be some in front of you, or you can use your phone But something really amazing happens when our eyes connect with the scripture. 
Uh, I told my eight-year-old this morning, I said, he had his Bible in his hand. And I told him, I said, hey, man, if you go to church without your Bible, that's trying to like, like, kind of like going to swim without water. So please get a hold of a Bible this morning so you can see that. Are you, do you love Jesus, Rest Church? Amen. Are you ready to study his law this morning? All right. This is Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. This is what it says. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're actually a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts, their conscience accuses or even excuses them on that day when according to my gospel, says Paul, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so in this bucket of Romans that we've been in with the wrath of God, the saints and the ain'ts, Paul's been building this indictment against all of us, all people in every place for, for why the wrath of God is just and coming against all people in every place. And so as I said just a minute ago, Paul, he goes from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And he takes up a lot of real estate to answer the why and the where and the how of the wrath of God coming against people that we are all guilty. And so first he hit the pagans first. Yeah, got that list up there. So he hit the pagans first, and then today we're wrapping up the moralists. Next week, Pastor Cody will open up with the Jewish religious guys, uh, and then we'll conclude it with the whole human race again. But Paul's been saying this, and he's going to continue to say it, that every one of us, that we are all guilty before God by the nature of creation and also by the nature of lawlessness. Or in other words, you and I, we have all been accurately placed on the proverbial wanted poster, and every one of us owes a debt to God. Now, if, you're, if you wonder like I wonder sometimes, I, I think it's easy to ask ourselves when reading through this question, like why, why does Paul spend so much time answering this question, proving our guilt before God, increasing our sentence, which is a really good question, I think, for us to ask. And the answer for us is that before you and I can get to the gospel, before we can get to uh, the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, me and you, we gotta be brought in under God's law, kicking and screaming if necessary to see his holy standards set up against our sin so that you and I can be completely persuaded, so that we can be uh, unequivocally convinced of our great need for the gospel and see the truth is there's no person in this room or or watching with church online right now none of us deserve God's grace and forgiveness any more so than anyone else in fact if God was fair in terms of worldly fairness that would mean that every one of us would get a one-way greyhound ticket to hell tonight See, but, but you and I, what we are, as, as Pastor D.T. Niles once said, is we're just like beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread. 
And this is why Paul addresses these Jews and, he, and he's, that are looking in at these sinful Gentiles. And, and they're going, we got the law, Paul. We got the feasts. We got the lineage. And Paul's like, I know, I know, I know you do. You're, you're an insider. But guess what? You're in just as much trouble too. And so today what we're going to do is look at two things from this text mainly. And it takes about half of our time for each of that just to prepare you in this. And the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at God's law, sort of a 50,000 foot overview. And then through our text, we're going to see how Paul applies the law to some different groups, to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and then ultimately how he applies it on judgment day. And the key concept we're going to keep in mind this morning as we walk through our text is that love, it doesn't replace the law, but God's law comes from a place of love. Love doesn't replace the law, but God's law, it comes from a place of love. And so if you would, we'll pray together and then we'll, we'll walk through this this morning. Jesus, thank you for your grace, Lord, that we get to come under and, and sit for those who are in you. And, and God, I just pray that you would help us, help us to be alert, help us to be attentive today to what your word, what your law has to say to us. And that God, we would come in hungry, that we would, we would come to it thirsty. Just as the Psalms say that as a deer pants for streams of water, so our souls thirst for you. God, help us to be thirsty for you. And, and not just information about you alone, God, but just you alone. Help us to know you more this morning. And, and, and with the stuff that we do pick up today and information, I pray, God, that we wouldn't just take it and, and stack it on the back shelf somewhere, but that it would lead to a real change, a real transformation in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our strength, God, in our worship. So we rebuke Satan and demons from this place, and we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to come and to teach us and draw us near to Jesus. It's in his good name we pray. God's people said, Amen, amen. Amen. I thought, about, I thought about hitting this as many times as I could, Pastor John, to see until people got annoyed today. On the guy. Yes. Is it about there? Okay. Um, so I'm sure you've probably heard this phrase before or even maybe said it once or twice yourself. Uh, and it, the phrase is this, and I'll let you help me fill in the blank. Christianity isn't about rules. It's about relationships. Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationships. And I'm sure you've probably heard that before or said it. And, and so I just want to ask you on this question, I want to ask the jury today, is this, is, this, is this true? Just think about it for a second. Is this true? I mean, it's a, it's a very similar kind of statement. Um, but, but if you had to say, you know, yes or no, what would, and you don't have to answer out loud, but what would you say? Is this true? Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationships. Well, on, on one side... It's like, absolutely. Christianity, following God, is about relationship with God because you can't know God apart from having relationship with him. But for us to say that rules are somehow in opposition with relationship, it just doesn't make a lot of sense biblically because in God's courtroom, 
um, his rules aren't meant to constrain our relationships, but they are actually made to enable our relationships. Rules are by nature communal because what they do is they help establish this standard um, and maintain uh, a certain standard in a certain community. Rules make sure that, that everyone is treated exactly uh, the same. And they give us an understanding of what's expected and what's accepted inside of a community. For example, uh, if you're part of an HOA, uh, the, the group rule, the community rule, you know, is they, they say like you can't park your RV in your front yard like a lawn ornament because uh, it's not Christmas vacation and you're not Cousin Eddie, right? So it's for the individual, but it's really for the, it's for the benefit of the group, the community, right? Or, or you, like it's great, you can take a, a shower at your house, Josh but you can't take one at the dollar store, right? It's for, it's for the benefit of the whole community. And, 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 and let me put this a different way to see if you can relate to this. Let's imagine that you get a phone call tomorrow morning or a text message and the local elementary school here, uh, Hendren, Lone Oak, Reedland, McNabb, Clark, Morgan, whatever, whatever elementary school is closest to you, you get a phone call from them and they're like, hey, we need some substitute teachers and they need two, but you can, you can only fill one spot because there's only one of you. And it's under the same school system, it's under the same principle, it's the same pay that you're gonna receive. But the whole caveat to this is that, that you get to choose which classroom you're gonna sub out for. And so let's imagine teacher number one that you could potentially sub in for, we'll call him uh, Mr. Love, Mr. Love. And in Mr. Love's classroom, well, it's kind of like the club at Friday night. It's, it's got it's high energy in there. It's like watching a blockbuster movie of a high-speed car chase and kids are running after each other. It's a whole lot of fun in, in Mr. Love's class. It's about free-spiritedness and spontaneity. But also it's sort of like watching an avalanche happen. It's a little chaotic at times. And so if Susie grabs a number two pencil and stabs Jimmy in the neck, uh, according to the rule in Mr. Love's class, uh, he's just gonna say, hey, E-L-E, everybody love everybody, just get along. Because in Mr. Love's class, that's the top priority, that the kids coming in, the kids going out, they feel loved. What this also means is there's, it's, it's not really that safe and in his class, there's no really sense of justice in, in Mr. Love's class. But he wants to make sure that everyone is enjoying the classroom and one another and you. So that's the first teacher you could sub out for, Mr. Love. Or a second teacher that you could sub out for, it's your choice, you're volunteering your time, is Mr. Law. And in Mr. Law's classroom, it's, it's not like Mr. Love's classroom because in Mr. Law's classroom, on the front of the room, on the dry erase board, he has the class commandments posted up so that everyone knows exactly what the expectation is when they come into his classroom. And it's not a free-for-all, and some might say it's kind of rigid because Mr. Law, what he's done is, is he's choreographed out, he's predestined a lesson plan for you to follow uh, in the sense of you're going to do English first and then math and then snack time and then free time and then you're going to do some more math. So he's got it all laid out with a really good structure in there. And in, in under the class commandments, 
that the kids know, if the kids don't obey those, those class commandments, there's gonna be consequences uh, for forsaking those class commandments because Mr. Law knows that without any direction and, and without any destination, there's really not much that's gonna be accomplished to, to grow the kids. And so Mr. Law believes that the best way that you can love these kids and help them learn is to follow the guardrails that he has set up so that they can grow individually and alongside one another. Now in these two scenarios, Mr. Love and Mr. Law, uh, which one would you, which one would you rather sub out for? Would you, would you rather, how many of you are like Mr. Mr. Love? You can raise your hand, don't be embarrassed. Or how many would you like sub out for Mr. Law? How many of you are like, I hate children, I'm not subbing out for anyone? I'm praying for all your hearts. Every hand that went up that Paul, this reiterates what Paul's telling us today. Uh, but this is, where I'm going with this is that this is exactly what we try to do when it comes to the law and the love of God. We try to pit them against each other as if they're two teachers that are mutually exclusive and they're not. Because it's not an either or in, in God's courtroom with law and love, but it's a both and. See, God, he's a God of love, and I don't think I have to work much to get you to, to believe me on that one, right? Like Jesus, he died for his friends. Uh, Christ, he reconciled us to himself while we were still enemies. I don't, probably don't have to convince you much of that our God is a God of love, and, and he wants us to enjoy him and his grace. But also our God, he is a God of perfect justice and perfect order. And so what he's done is he set up a system, some guardrails in place for you and for I, so that we can learn to both flourish and enjoy him in. In fact, it's the rules that God gives that help us understand how to live in correct relationship with him and with our neighbor. And so love, it doesn't replace the law. Law, it comes from a place of love. But there's this really big problem in the Bible when we read this word law that shows up and this is that 50,000 foot overview. Because whenever we read that word law in the scripture, I think that mentally sometimes what happens is that we, we imagine the blue lights in our rear view mirror and our stomach drops just a little bit. When we think about law, and in verses 12 through 16, you can count them, Paul says law 11 times. Just in 12 through 16, he's like, La 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 la. Right? He talks about law a lot, and 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 the problem is that they don't all mean the exact same thing when he uses them throughout the course of Romans, and he says it seventy-two different times. And so, explaining what Paul means when he says law, it's about as easy as nailing Jello to a tree. And and, and so. It can get confusing, it, it can get messy because there are such a wide range of different but complementary uh, phrases that, and stances that Paul takes toward law. It's, it's almost like this big jigsaw puzzle that, that Paul's taken and tossed out on the table and the lid's missing from it. And there's a big book of instructions in Chinese and like some of the corners could fit in some places, but they could fit in other places. And what we're left doing with law in Romans is to try to faithfully piece this puzzle back together. 
And so I wanna show you really quickly a general snapshot of this jigsaw puzzle that Paul uses. Sometimes when Paul talks about law through the course of Romans, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's neutral in how he uses it. And this will be on the screen. Um, it, sometimes it's the sum of the specific commands that God gives uh, to Israel through Moses. Sometimes it's a, just a portion of the Sinai covenant, the Big Ten, the Decalogue. Uh, sometimes it's what's commanded in the Mosaic law in totality, the 600 plus uh, ordinances. Sometimes it's a collection of those commandments, such as the civil or ceremonial laws. Uh, parts of the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word. And sometimes it's the covenant code. Sometimes it's the holiness code. Elsewhere in scripture, in John uh, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus quotes the Psalms and he calls the Psalms the law. It's a, in the Torah, uh, which is a Hebrew word that means the guidance of the law. It's a standard, it's a tutor, it's a measuring stick. There's the law of sin and death. There's the law of the spirit of life. It's an identity marker for the Jewish people. And so if you and I, when we read that word law, if we take that only, only as a legal system that's built into the first five, that's a real problem. And since law is so central to Paul's writing, it has to be central to our thoughts as well. And, and look, I don't want us to get too, too hung up on, on, on law this morning as we work through our, our, our text, but I, I do need to lay this sort of foundation with law. This is, this is law 101, right? And so we need to lay this foundation to kind of work off of how to properly piece this, this jigsaw puzzle that Paul lays out for us. And, and look, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I don't, you might, I don't have the bandwidth to talk about the law over the whole course of scripture in depth. Um, and so what, I'm gonna, what I've done is I've broken it down into four parts for us this morning. And I'm gonna hit these really, really quickly. If you have a pencil and you're writing these down, it might catch on fire because you're writing so fast, okay? But this is the law over the course of scripture in four parts. And it's this, number one, uh, the law of sin and death with Adam and condemnation, the patriarchal law, the patriarchal law with Abraham and his promises, the old covenant law um, with Moses and Israel where sin was both magnified and manifested. And then the new covenant law with Christ where sin is remedied. And so we're gonna hit these really, really, really quick. And the disclaimer on this is, this is my interpretation of it. And you can have your own interpretation of it too. And we can still be friends, okay? Tell your neighbor, say, hey, we're friends today. We're friends today. So really, really quickly, the law, number, number one, or A, the law of sin and death with Adam and condemnation. Whenever God first created the world, he put uh, Adam and Eve in it and he made a, a law for them. It was this grace garden that he gave them with one law tree. And Adam was the first, but of course he wasn't the last in the line of patriarchs to receive uh, the law from God. The moral law had been stamped onto his heart. But we know through the story of Genesis that in the devil's deception, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, and so sin entered into our world. And therefore, under God's just and fair judgment, our sin, our rebellion, it deserved the death penalty. And this is what Romans 5, 14, when it, when it says this, so from the time of Adam to Moses, death reigned. It's the law of sin and death. Next B is the patriarchal law with Abraham and his promises. 
And so this portion of law, um, along with the next portion, it was designed really to show sin, to point out the need for the coming Savior. And, and this was considered as a covenant. It was designed, built as a, as a fence, so to speak, um, so, so that the people, uh, to keep the people locked in so that their sin wouldn't get out of hand. Because even before the flood, Sin, it had progressed so far that God, he made the decision to destroy everything. He said, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit that, that reset button on everything. And, and as he does this, to prevent this from happening again, God institutes the patriarchal law and penalties to, to, in a sense, as a way to hold back the progression of sin. And so we fast forward from the patriarchal age to, uh, to, from Abraham until Moses. Job falls into this, uh, sacrificing for his family, and he offers up sacrifices to cover up the law of sin and death. And, and so this goes back to the beginning in the garden, but it moves in the same progression throughout. Now, since the law of sin and death, since it's, it was in the very beginning of everything and operating from the start, that means that there must to have been a law there, which Romans 4.15 says this, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so the patriarchal age, it runs from, for the Jews, hear me, from the Jews, it's from the time of Adam until the time of Moses. But for the Gentiles, this patriarchal age was from the time of the first Adam until the death of the second Adam, Jesus. Which brings us to see number three, the old covenant law uh, with Moses and Israel. And as we move throughout the Mosaic age, which is really um, just for the Israelites to a very large degree, beginning with Moses and it lasts until Christ's death. Now in Exodus chapter 20, God brings his people out of, or before that he brings his people out of slavery in Egypt and he brings them into Sinai. You're talking about some two, three million people. And it's there that God lays out for Moses the Decalogue, the 10 words, the big 10, the 10 commandments. And he singles out this special nation of Israel and brings them under a special law. And so the Big Ten, they operate as sort of the core of this law. And it's broken down into three categories, humanly speaking, uh, ceremonial, civil, and moral. And, uh, and, and it's this extensive body of ordinances and, and simultaneously the moral code, it's been stamped right on, on, on everyone's hearts. And this law, it does a lot of things. The Mosaic law that we don't have, we just don't have the, the time to talk about all of them. I don't have time to tell you about how the Mosaic law provided a human ancestry for Christ. I don't have time to tell you about how the Mosaic law raised everyone's awareness of sin or how it magnified God's glory and his grace or how it served as a manifest and testimony for our need for faith. But the key part of this law, the Mosaic law, is that it couldn't save, it could only condemn. It, it didn't even cover up as much as it guarded and exposed what was wrong. And so this law, it's, it serves as sort of this imperative parenthesis and God's purposes coming 430 years after Abraham's covenant. And it lasts only until Christ can be revealed when he would come. Galatians chapter 3 verses 23 and 24. I won't read these, but we'll leave them up for a second. 
And so the picture is that even though this law was a really good thing, it could not save. It couldn't save anyone. Because no one could live up to the standard that it set. And even though the old covenant, it promised life, uh, Leviticus 18, verse 5, it promised life to those who would keep it. (laughs) The issue is that no one could keep the law perfectly all the time. And therefore, no one could receive that life through the law. See, the law, it never, it never created the kind of people that God intended. But the error wasn't in the law. The error was in the people who were following the law. And this law was only temporary. And it turned into sort of a, a dead end instead of a, a way of life but it was pointing us to something better, Galatians 3.10. Which brings us lastly to the gospel new covenant law of Christ and the remediation of sin. And it's like, yes, like finally in the unfolding of God's story, Christ comes and he brings in a new law by fulfilling some old ones, which Paul variously calls these throughout Romans. It'll be on the screen. The gospel of Christ, the form of doctrine, the law of the spirit of life, the word of faith, God's covenant promise, the perfect will of God, the revelation of the mystery from God. And and what I want you to see, the big difference between Christ's law and God's other established laws before this is that Christ's law provided a solution for sin, not just a cover-up for it, so that the atoning sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on the cross would pay our debt, Romans 8, 1 and 2. And now... Christ has set us free from that yoke of slavery, slavery, which is a well-known metaphor for the law. Love doesn't replace the law. Law comes from a place of love. Now, I do want to say, I think it's important for us to know that us Gentiles, I believe we were really only part of the first two and fourth ages, and there's discussion and debate on that. But I don't believe we were ever under the full weight of Moses outside of the moral code, or, or unless you were a Gentile that joined into the nation of Israel to become Jewish. So that's, that's a 50,000 foot view of the law. Are you thoroughly confused now? Good, good. Um, Let's move into our text, into our puzzle. Verse 12, Pastor Cody preached this last week. I'm not gonna re-preach it. I'm just gonna show you kind of a different perspective on it um, using some different wording here. And so we'll tag these really, really fast, the first two. Verse 12, Romans 2, for all have sinned without the law, animos. They will also perish without the law, animos. And all who have sinned under the law, hyponomen or nomos, will be judged by the nomos. For it is not the hearers of the nomos who are righteous before God. So the, the hearers are the Jews, right? They were the possessors of the law and they were also possessed under the law. But it's the doers of the law, the nomos who will be justified talking about Jesus. Now I added in there, uh, as you've seen in the text, some words that maybe you haven't heard before with nomos and anomos. And nomos is, uh, it's a law, it's the law, it's works of the law. And the three general meanings that Paul uses when he says this is he's talking about a standard, he's talking about a principle, he's talking about a norm. 
So this is a legal system and it's also the holy scriptures that he's referring to. And so therefore, if that's what nomos means, enomos means just the absence of the nomos. It's that that's not there. It's the same word, but sometimes it means different things in different ways that Paul uses this. Listen to this. This is from Richard Hayes and Paul and the Law. He says this, for Paul, nomos is always the same collection of texts, but the import of those texts shift dramatically in accordance with the hermeneutical perspective at each stage of the, uh, I gave it to you in four parts, unfolding drama. And so a good guide, not a, not a perfect guide, but a really good guide on this for us is that whenever we see uh, the, the term nomos in the negative, it's usually Paul referring to the commandments. And whenever we see Paul use the word nomos in the positive, it's generally referring to a broader meaning of the scriptures as a whole. Now, so, so how do we approach this now, this text? Knowing what nomos is, knowing what anomos is. Well, let's look back at verse 12, pull verse 12 back up. This is what he's saying to them. And I'm just reading along with you. He's going, okay, you, you Gentile sinners, you non-Jews, without the written law of Moses, you're gonna die and be judged by God without the written law because your sin is still sin and sin still deserves death. They're identified there as without the law or apart from the law because it wasn't handed to them at, at, at Sinai. And simultaneously, look at verse 12, Paul says, and for you Jewish sinners who do have the written law of Moses, you too, will, you're gonna die, you're gonna be judged by God according to or under the law of Moses. And so here, nomos is being used as a synonym for the Jew. Because the Jews, they're not only under the law, hyponomon, but they're also in the law and nomo, Romans 2, 12. They're, and they're from the law, eknomo, eknomu. And so they are both, uh, possessors of, and they are possessed by the law. This is the Jewish identity. This is the state of every Jew. And so they are under the power, the rule, the command, the sovereignty of the written law. But Paul's whole point here is that each person is gonna be held accountable to the standards of their own knowledge of God. And Paul has already been super clear on this, that, that every person has enough knowledge of who God is just from the creation. And so no one has an excuse. Romans 1, 19 and 20, we've seen that earlier. The very end there, for what's known about God is plain to them. He's shown it to them, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, then skip to the end. They are without excuse. And so all men stand equally condemned before God, whether Jew, whether Gentile, whether you have the law of God or not, this is the effect of the law of sin and death. Verse 13, look at verse 13. It says, for it's not the hearers of the law or the nomos who are righteous before God, but the doers of the nomos who will be justified. Again, remember, the Jews are the ones that are the hearers of the law as they're the ones who've received the law of Moses. They've heard this. They grew up in synagogue with it. They had a teacher that was assigned to them to teach them each one of the laws. So they knew exactly what it meant. They knew the depth of what each one was talking about from the time that they were babies. And, and, and so Paul says here, that hearing about what's right and wrong, it doesn't matter. You can leave that verse up, pull it back up, Julie. He says that, that, that 
hearing about what's right and wrong, that it doesn't matter in terms of that last word, justification. But what matters is that you do right perfectly all the time to be in a position of being justified before God. Justified, an easy way to remember it is it's, it's God looks at you just as if I've never sinned. Who's the only person in that category, church? Jesus. Jesus. And so Paul's saying what, what meaning, what matters here, it's not just possessing the law, but it's responding correctly to what's said. And this is going back to what Pastor Cody said last week about our, our good works, that they, hey, your good works matter, but also they don't matter and they're not good until the foundation, until the root, the motive is Christ Jesus, because there's no other way to be righteous to, before God, to be justified under him outside of sola fide, uh, sola Christus, it by faith alone, in Christ alone. Other than that, there is no way. And if you have good works apart from that, then Cody said they're really just, it's just rotten fruit. And so we are chosen because Christ is the chosen one. We are elect because Christ is the one that's elect. And when we are in him, it makes us justified. And so Paul's leaning us into, he's like, it's not attempting to do the law that's flawed, But the point he's gonna make and he's gonna continue to make is that no one can do it perfectly. And this is what it's supposed to show you, that you can't measure up to it. And so all of that, okay, you're like, gosh, we've been talking for so long. All of that is really a setup for for the the last three verses here today. And so if last week's thesis from Cody, if it was sort of like, okay, uh, the, the Jews, they need to be hearers and doers of the law, a complete and perfect doer of the law, then today's verses really answer for us the question that the Jew would have been asking is they would have been going, okay, Paul, but, but what about the Gentiles who, who don't even have the law? How can they follow this standard? And so this, this brings us to verse 14. It's, just, it's a parenthetical statement at the very beginning that Paul uses. For when Gentiles who do not have the law uh, nomos or by, na- by nature instinctively do what the nomos requires, they are a, a nomos to themselves even though they do not have the nomos. Now I said there, it, this is a parenthetical statement from Paul because when Paul uses that word when there, it means uh, it's hoton. And so for Paul, it's, it's parenthetical in the sense of when, meaning whenever. And so Paul's, what he's saying is, is he's going, what I'm about to say um, can be true. It's not always true, but the extent of his conclusion that he's gonna get to is true. You follow me? And so he's like, okay, okay. So, 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 so. If, if speaking of obeying the law, being a doer, in the text. The Gentiles weren't the ones that received the law of Moses in the first place, but sometimes you're gonna, this weird thing happens where you find the Gentiles doing the things that were prescribed to do within the law of Moses. And he says in the text, and when this happens, they too come under a law, not the law, a law in the sense of this testimony is being built up against them in their sin. Now, Paul's telling us here, he's telling us that even the Gentiles, even us outside, and we don't have the law, we weren't, it wasn't given to us, that even we have this understanding, this minimum understanding of what's right and what's wrong. 
Except ours, is, it's, it's a floor though. It's a floor understanding. It's not a ceiling. And it, it says in the text there, that's come to them by nature. God's legal code for the Gentiles has already been ingrained in them by nature, by design, by God. And so they are just as much without an excuse as the Jews were. And, and we've seen Paul use that phrase by nature before. I brought the verse up a second ago with Romans 1, 19 through 20. And in 19 through 20, he was talking about by the nature of creation. Here, Paul's talking about by the nature of the law or by the nature of our lawlessness because we disobey it. And so it's through this, um, this general revelation, church, that God has given in his mercy the ability for people to know uh, what's right versus what's wrong. It's, it's similar to like a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee that has those Easter eggs hidden on them, you know, somewhere. It's got this unique purpose kind of built into it. And you kind of got to look a little bit sometimes to, to find it. That's what, that's what he's saying. The moral code for the Gentile and the Jew is, is like this. And as much as it serves, as the text said, a law to themselves. Because remember, this whole thing Paul's talking about here is not just about hearing the law. It's not just about having the law that makes you righteous, but it's about doing it how? Perfectly, perfectly doing it. Pointing back to what Cody said in verses 12 and 13 when he used James chapter two, verse 10 mentioned that, that it's his work that saves us. And, and what happens is his work saves us. It produces some good works in us. Unfortunately, we don't always follow this law, us Gentiles, that's been built into us. I was mowing this week and uh, I, was, I, had, I was blowing off, I finished up, I was blowing off my, our, our, our sidewalk and then the front porch and I got up to the front door and I realized that something was wrong. Can you pull that photo up? Yeah, so I sent this picture to my wife, Laura. Um, this is the law of mow away from your house, okay? Now, now let me ask you on this. Would you believe that one tiny little rock did this? One tiny, I got the shot vec evidence to prove it. It took me 45 minutes to shot vac all that glass up. One little rock broke it. Now let me ask you another question on this picture. Did, did that one tiny little rock, did it, did it hit every single part of the glass? No, right, it just came in one, one shot. But what did it do? It broke the whole thing. The whole thing was shattered. And it's the same exact with the law. If we fail at just one tiny little pebble of it, we've broken, we've shattered the whole glass. The whole law has been this way. And, and so when Paul brings in this example to the Gentiles, he's really sort of turning the dagger in the heart of the Jew because these, these moralistic Jews, they were nodding their heads about those Gentiles, you know. And, and they were like, yeah, man, the Gentiles, they got all those false gods. They, they got general revelation. They don't even got the big 10. They aren't bringing any sacrifices to the table. They don't have any hope. You get them, Paul. And Paul's like, hey, hey, you guys know that God's gonna judge them by their works, right? Verse 12, verse 16. And they're like, yeah, Paul. 
God's gonna judge them by their works. And then Paul's like, but, but you know that God's gonna judge everybody. He's gonna judge you by your works, right? And they're like, yeah, Paul. Ev-. Now, when you say everybody, <laughs> Paul, does that, mean, does that mean like all of us or just, you know, some of us? Like, what's the, what's the breakdown here with this? And Paul's saying, yeah, everybody, um, those without the law are gonna be judged by their works and they're gonna be accountable to God for the knowledge they've received about God. And it's certainly enough that they'll be guilty. It's not enough to save them, but it's certainly enough to condemn them. And then he says, but it's uh, for, for the same with you Jews with the law, you're gonna be judged by your works too. And you have an encyclopedia of instruction that you have failed at. And it's like, you can, almost, you can almost feel, right? You can almost feel in the text, Paul's head, or the Jewish mind just spinning here. And, and they're going, but I'm, I'm, I'm connected to Abraham though. I'm, I'm connected to Moses. I'm, Paul, I'm, a, I'm an insider. I, I go to this church here. But Paul, what about that one time that I brought that, I brought that big bull, wasn't the little bull, I brought that big bull into the temple and then the priest, he sacrificed it uh, for me on my past. Or, or do you, I do good most of the time, Paul. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're a sinner. You've violated, you've broken God's law and you're gonna stand before him to be judged, you Jew, by the written code and the moral code. And so Paul carries this out, this thought by appealing to conscience, say conscience. He appeals to conscience as a witness to this and he applies it to both the Jew and the Gentile. He says there, look at the text, he goes, right, you, you, you Gentiles who do what the law requires even though you don't have it. And so the Gentiles, they didn't possess the law from Mount Sinai, it wasn't given to them. It was written on tablets of stone. But what they do have there is a conscience and their conscience is a consistent, with the tenants from the written law. Look at what he says, verse 15. They, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written in their heart, on their hearts, um, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so remember back with me on, on the positive side of that word, Nomos. This is a court case, Paul. He's speaking judiciously about this evidence and, and it's supporting the Gentiles in the sense that sometimes these Gentiles who don't know Christ do Christ-like things because morality, the recognition of, of what's right and wrong has been given as this general grace of God to all people. But on the, on the negative side of the Nomos, it stands as a condemnation against also for the Jew and for the Gentile because every one of us has shattered the front door and our conscience reminds us. And so now I want you to notice here, look at the text. When, when Paul says, he, he says, he doesn't say the law has been written on their hearts, but he says the work of the law has been written on their hearts. So what, 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 what does that mean? What's the, what's the work of the law? Well, the work of the law is the, it's the finish line. It's the intended outcome of what's supposed to happen uh, in following the rule. And so the, in, in, a, in a real small synopsis of this, this is, you know, if you, if that marriage is honored, that God is acknowledged, that, you know, you obey your parents, um, that, you, that you, you listen to what they have to say, that life is protected, it's that our, our vertical relationship with God and our 
horizontal relationships with one another are better because the, the rules are intended to help our, our relationships. Let me show you this real quick. Back in Exodus chapter 20, whenever, whenever God hands over to Moses the Decalogue, the 10 words, the big 10, and you're familiar with those, right? Don't, don't have any other gods uh, before me. Don't worship idols. Remember the Sabbath. And those can be broken down in the sense of the first four, they're about our relationship with God and the next six are about our horizontal relationships with one another. And most of the commandments, they're given in the negative form. It says like, hey, you shouldn't, you shall not um, do whatever. But it's, it's given in the negative, but it also has this positive dimension to it. For example, um, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, it also, it also positively means you, you shouldn't worship any, anyone else, but you should worship God. Whenever the scripture says, honor your father and mother, it's implying also, so don't, don't disrespect the authorities God's placed in your life. But the picture here that I'm getting at is God always intended that the law would be internalized in the hearts of his people. And so Jesus reiterates this in the New Testament in Mark chapter 12, and he takes the big 10 and he outsources them to the big two. And he says it like this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells us, he tells us here that it was always intended as a law of love. And if followed, it would affect your vertical relationship with God. It would affect your horizontal relationships with the people in your life. There's not a single place in the scripture that ever suggests that God hates obedience to the Decalogue. It's just not there. In fact, I would go as far as to say, when you see the prophets complaining in the Old Testament, they're not complaining about the law. They're comp complaining about the disobedience to the law because no one fits the standard. No one does what God asked them to do and they can't do it. And so it's copies and it's shadows, as Hebrews says, uh, prefiguring this perfect work of Christ that he would do on our behalf. And so the law, the love doesn't replace the law. Law comes from a place of love. Julie, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip all the stuff about, uh, about conscience this morning. We're gonna, we're gonna go right to the last part here. Paul, he's, he's talking about making a judgment call. And, 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 and he's, he's calling out the Jews and the Gentiles who were making themselves judge and jury essentially based on what they felt was right. And the truth is that there's only one umpire in this game that gets to call balls and strikes in your life, and that's God. And what he says through his word is ultimately true, even if I don't like it. Now hear me on this, hear me on this. This leads us into verse 16. Our obedience to God, our obedience to the law, to the word, this will be the determining factor of whether we stand before him, as the text said in 15, accused or excused on judgment day. Verse 16, because on that day, the great white throne judgment, the final judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men 
by Christ Jesus. Follow this logic with me for just a second. So if there is a universal law given to us through creation, given to us by our, our conscience, it means, it must mean that there is a universal judge to uphold justice according to that law. And because that law is created, that means that it didn't just manifest, but it had to have been given by a, a, a lawgiver. And if there is a lawgiver, then there's a judge. And that means that there must be a time for the judge to pronounce judgment. And in the judgment, circling back to the beginning, if there's a judgment that happens, there's got to be a standard of righteousness that our judgment can be set against, which is the law. Now, now throughout the scriptures, anytime there's a dispute, what would happen is two or three witnesses, say two or three, two or three witnesses would be brought in to testify to the truth. It was required. And so naturally, I think it's easy for us to assume that at the end of our life, the same sort of thing is gonna happen. And so the prosecutor, Paul, he lays out three witnesses. This is the last thing. Three witnesses for us. And the first one that he calls to stand, the first witness he calls to stand against you and I is God himself who sees all, who knows all. See, for the believer, there will be a a judgment of reward for the works in Christ you've committed. And what a day for you. What a day for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a day for you. For the non-believer, it it is a judgment of condemnation though against the sinful works you've committed against Christ. See, whenever you do something good or bad for the kingdom, you might forget, but God doesn't forget. And we've said this before, but God's a really good note taker. I think, Lindsay, I think God has one of those pens in heaven that have all of the colors on them, like just incredibly organized, you know? And what he's going to do is God is going to bring down on our heads exactly what we deserve. It's the principle of exact retribution. It's what the just judge will, will do. He will judge justly. And so there's no socialism at the judgment seat of works. You will be rewarded based on what you have done. This is the law's first divine basis of judgment through God. And Paul's point earlier on, Pastor John preached about it, I think, God shows no partiality. This judgment is for all. It's for Jew and for Gentile. They will be judged without discrimination. That's the first witness. The second witness that, that, that we brought to the stand is our conscience. Our conscience that God has baked into us to know what is right and to know what is wrong, even if we don't fully know God. And so whether you've come to this knowledge about God by, by special revelation, by general revelation, by, by grace, by nature, outwardly or inwardly from the tablets of stone or from the tablets that God's written on your heart, that's largely irrelevant. Because both Jew and Gentile, we all have some, at least some knowledge of God's law and some knowledge of God's goodness But what you and I have done is we have taken God's truth, we have suppressed it, we have drowned his truth, and we have exchanged uh, his glory and his truth for a lie. And so by creation and by our own conscience, it will testify against us. Do you get that? You will be testifying against you. 
And so no human on that day can plead complete ignorance before God because we've all sinned against the law that we've known. And then lastly, the last witness that will be called against us is the word of God or the law of God itself. No one of us can come and, and, and say, hey, I was, I, God, I was in the lineage of Abraham. I was a member of this church over here. God, would you just, God, just look at my resume. We will all be held, listen, we will all be held before this standard of Matthew 5. Listen to these words. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as God is perfect. That's a tall order. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so under this standard, we're all guilty. And Paul, go, in the text, in, in verse 16, he actually said that on that day, our secrets will be revealed, all of our secrets. And so what happens is you and I, we sin. We just express it in different ways. Some of us sin overtly. And so we make it real pub, public. We flaunt our sin. We don't care. We post it on social media so everybody can see about it. And some of us, more religious people, more moral people, we're kind of sneaky. And so we hide it. We, we're covert in our sin, but, but Paul says on this day, the secrets of men, everyone will be revealed, will be brought to the light by Christ Jesus. So imagine it as this, if the, you know, God's got that dash cam footage of your life and he plays it on the heavenly big screen, makes it public. Every secret, every secret. This means the things that aren't known right now will be known. And that includes things like our motive. And so here's what's gonna happen. Here's the summary. Paul's reiterating for the Gentile sinners, you may not be judged under the law written on tablets, but you will be judged by the tablets that have been written on your heart that's leveraged against you with your own conscience and with creation. And then for the Jewish sinner, he says, you too will be judged by the standard of the law that you knew but failed to keep or kept it with wrong motives. If you're not in Christ, as Paul said, on that, day when God lays it all out on the table when Jesus the the perfect judge reviews all of the evidence if you're not found in him you will drown into hell with the law as the anchor tied around your feet pulling you down and Paul lastly says there in verse 16 if you look he says as my gospel declares why does he why does he say that as my gospel declares because because God's judgment on sin is just as fundamental as his declaration about his son is. God's judgment on sin is just as fundamental. All will face judgment, all deserve wrath. And Jew and Gentile, religious, irreligious, rule keeper, rule breaker, it's all level. And Paul says it's not until we, we get from this ground that we're able to look up and see the cross clearly. Because love doesn't replace law. Law comes from a place of love. 